Good to see you guys. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and make your way to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 19. We are going to finish up the book of Judges today. We have come to the end of a long and sometimes sobering journey, and uh, well, that won't change today. Um, if, we've, if we've learned anything through the book of Judges, and I hope there have been a few things. If there's anything that's become clear through the book of Judges, it's that the book of Judges was not written for a generation that is bent and shaped by Pinterest and Instagram and Facebook. You know, a generation of people like ourselves being shaped by timelines and posts where everything seems happy, everyone's on vacation, everyone else seems to be having a party, and every picture is perfect. It's not ready for the book of Judges. I mean, even when you come across the occasional post or picture that tries to depict something of failure, something of sadness, something of worry, something of anxiety, it's still gone through a careful crafting and narration and the picture's probably been taken 10,000 times and the right filter's been found so that the truth is there, but not quite the whole truth, just a piece of it. That kind of reality, it, it isn't made for honesty. The thing is, as we come to the end of the book of Judges, and we come to the final case study in the life of God's people that we'll see in chapters 19 through 21, and it's really just one big story. When we come to the end of it, we, we find ourselves face to face with something in life that certainly wouldn't make it on Pinterest. There aren't going to be any Instagram posts about this. We're going to come to face to face with stories that are gruesome, that are tragic, saddening, but they're here for a reason. I mean, to stretch the metaphor as far as I possibly can, God chose to post them and not edit them. And Paul will tell Timothy that all of the Bible, all of Scripture, including Judges 19 through 21. It's breathed out by God, and it has a purpose. It's meant by God to be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. God has a point even for Judges 19 through 21 for you and I. People have tried over the centuries to, to sum up, I think, the point of what this is making for us and why it's here, and it's simply this, and you can, you can give this to anybody you want. I think the history gives it to different people, but those who fail to remember the past are condemned to repeat it. These stories are, are here to teach us, one, that we might not repeat the errors of God's people then. Judges chapter, chapters 19 through 21, they're, they're the second part of the conclusion of the book where God takes us by the hand into the ground level, into the cities, into the villages, into the tents, into the lives of his people that we might see what it actually is that he was having to deliver them from. 
The book of Judges, if you've been with us so far throughout the entire series, or or for a bulk of it, has been concerned with this cycle that keeps happening in God's people's lives where they turn away from faith in God and they turn to the idols of the land that they find themselves in and God gives them over to oppression at the hand of the nations around them and then God raises up a deliverer to deliver them out of that oppression, but then they return back. And over and over and over again, we hear the story that God has to deliver his people, but, but now he wants us to see exactly what it is he's having to deliver them from. And so last week we met this man Micah in his household and we looked at the tribe of Dan and and how they, like the rest of God's people, just, just a picture of them, had chosen to reject God as he had revealed himself to them. They had chosen to reject God as he had revealed himself to all of his people and the promises that he made to them. And they chose instead to reform and refashion God into an image that seemed more appealing and more right to them in their own eyes. And this morning in Judges chapters 19 through 21, we are going to see the inevitable moral fruit in the lives of God's people when they no longer are willing to be shaped by who God is for them and choose instead to do whatever seems right in their own eyes. Friends, underneath everything we're going to read, underneath all the varied stories and the the things that we'll see is the same root. Everyone has determined for themselves that they have the right to be their own Lord. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they have determined for themselves that they have the right to be like God and to decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong based on whatever seems right to them. Don't be confused. Postmodernism, modernism, subjectivity, relativism, it's not new. There's nothing new, modern, or postmodern about it. It's been present in the lives of humanity since the garden. All it is now is philosophical jargon to help us justify doing whatever we want to do. And it has consequences. And this morning, what we have to come face to face with are some of the moral consequences that are inevitable when God's people decide that they will determine to do whatever seems right to them. Inevitably, when life is lived based on what seems right and best to you, people around you, people around you become expendable. When what seems right to you and the way you live is driven by what seems right to you, you have to then look around at people and see them as nothing but a means to your end because what you're driven by is what you want. And when life becomes lived according to what seems right in your eyes alone, not only do people become expendable, but gone is any ability that you have to take any level of responsibility for your sin. We're going to see it play itself out. We're going to watch that unfold in God's people of Israel and we're going to have to come face to face with the vicious cycle that sin plays in the lives of people. This nasty merry-go-round that our own sin puts us on if only someone would step in and deliver us from it. The story begins in Judges chapters 19 after 19 and it begins with a religious professional, a Levite, In those days, verse one says that there was no king in Israel and a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim 
who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. And, there was, and she was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. And so we start the journey now of having to come face to face with the horrific consequences of subjective morality. We're going to come face to face with the, the natural product of doing what's right in our own eyes, the devaluing of other people. And we meet a religious professional who has for himself, the Bible says, a concubine. So right away, we, we are made aware of what role God's word plays in the life of his people in the story. We already recognize that they seem to, to sense no authority from God's word for their lives. I mean, it's not even a nuanced reality. They're, they're breaking the big 10. God had told his people, you're not to commit adultery. Why? Because you're made in my image and likeness. And the relationship that I've ordained for you between one man and for one woman is meant to be a living reflection of my covenant faithfulness and my love towards you. You're not to do it. But we see the role of God's word and the authority of God's word in the lives of his people here just even as we meet this man. Because whenever you begin to do what seems right in your own eyes, it changes the way you see people. People become a means to your end. They become cheap, they become expendable. Not only has this man broken God's law and taken for himself a concubine and committing adultery, he, he can do nothing other than treat her as though she simply exists to meet the end he has in mind. And we're gonna watch it continue to unplay. Something happened between them. We don't know what it is. The Bible says that she was unfaithful, but that specific word doesn't always mean like marital unfaithfulness. That word can be used in different places to talk about like a fight, an argument, some kind of disagreement. We don't actually know the context of that word. So something happened and she leaves and she goes back to her dad, goes back to her home and he lets her for four months because she's simply a means to a particular end for him. So four months go by before he decides he's going to go and get her. And so he decides he's going to go and get her and he goes to her father's house where she is. And for the next nine verses, the writer focuses on the overwhelming hospitality of this woman's dad towards this man. And there's a sense that they're building you up for the tragic fall that's about to happen in just a moment. He gives this man this overwhelming reception and shows him this overwhelming hospitality. He takes him into his house and they literally eat and drink for four and a half days. It's like a four and a half day food and wine bender completely. They eat and drink and get married one day. It turns into three days and the Levite keeps wanting to go home. And every day dad says, no, stay a little longer. So he stays a little longer. And then finally on the fifth day, he eats, he drinks, and he decides I'm leaving. But the dad says, no, no, stick around a little bit longer. His daughter says, no, stick around a little bit longer. Even the Levite servants say, no, stick around a little bit longer. Why? Because nightfall's coming soon. We won't make it far. So let's stay one more night, get up in the morning refreshed, and head on about our way. But the Levite says, no, we're not going to stay another night. 
And so he gets everything and he gets his people and he takes off and night falls approaching. And it's, it's like a, a picture, a, it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor, it's an image that is beginning to happen in the story. Darkness is starting to enter the story now. Nightfall is approaching. This man and his people begin to make the journey back to their home and they don't get far before night comes. Night descends on them and one of his servants says, let's stop up here in the town of Jebus. It's dark. We can't get much further, but the Levite doesn't want to stop there. Look at verse 12. He says, no, we're not going to turn aside into the city of foreigners who don't belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. Now there's something that happens there that's kind of important for you to understand why he says what he says in in his response, because your Bible probably has a little parenthetical statement there saying that this town was also Jerusalem. Does your Bible have that in your translation? Why would Jerusalem be the town of foreigners for a person of Israel? Well, remember, in the beginning of the story, God's people did not go in obedience and take the land that God had given them. This would later become Jerusalem. But at this time in the story, it was occupied by the Jebusites because God's people had not been obedient to take the land. So when this man, this Levite comes by, I'm not going to stay there because the Jebusites are there. It has not yet been conquered by God's people at the time. So he wants to go on to Gibeah because Gibeah is in the city of the tribe of Dan. I mean, excuse me, the tribe of Benjamin. So he wants to go to where he is amongst God's people. And so they keep going and they get to Gibeah. Now the custom of traveling in that particular day was that when you entered into a city, the the elders and the old men of the city and the old men of the town would have been at the city gates. So when this kind of caravan or traveler would have come into the city, they would have met the old men, they would have met the elders of the city gates, conversation would have ensued. Where are you from? Of what tribe are you of? Who are your people? They would realize that, that both of them were part of God's people, both part of Israel, one from one tribe, one from another. And part of the custom and the, the expectation there was that they would be given hospitality, a place to stay, food to eat, hay, straw, water for their animals, a place to spend the night while they got up the next day and went on their journey. So they make their way to Gibeah, they enter the city, but no one shows them this kind of hospitality. They go through the gates and past the gates and you can read, they get all the way into the the middle of the city, into the square of the city, and no one has shown them this kind of hospitality. Now what would have happened is if that had stayed that way and if they had woken up the next morning and made their way out of the city of Gibeah, that Levite would have cursed that city and cursed those people for the rest of his life. He would have made sure everyone knew what kind of people they were for not showing them hospitality. But rather than that happening, verse 16 tells us, an old man comes up and shows them the hospitality they're looking for and takes them in. Says, I've got everything in my house to make your heart merry. So he takes them into their house, to his house for the night. And you pick up the story in verse 22. As they're making their hearts merry, Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house and began to beat on the door. So they're, they're eating, they're drinking, they're happy, they got a place to stay, they're going to sleep, wake up the next day, make their way back home, and this angry, worthless mob shows up and begins to beat on the door. And they say to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And this mob is demanding this at the door late at night while they're inside trying to eat and drink and get ready to go to bed for the next day. And then the most twisted perverse version of hospitality begins to happen. This old man who received this Levite and his caravan into his house for the night tries to show deference to that man and respect to that man. And in the face of this angry mob, he offers up to them his own daughter and the concubine of the Levite instead of the man that he's hosting and protecting. 
It's the most twisted version of hospitality I have ever heard of, but the mob doesn't receive it. They say no. And when the mob rejects the old man's offer of his own daughter and the concubine of the Levite, the Levite steps in and the Bible literally says he made her go out to the mob. The translation would be, he took her and he shoved her out the door and he shut the door and he went back inside and he went to sleep and he slept while she endured the most defacing and brutal thing you could imagine. He slept. The writer of the book of Judges, he tells this story because he's got something he wants you to hear or for those who are reading, something he wants you to see. See, there's something about this story that would remind hearers of the story or readers of the story of another story that had happened before in Genesis chapter 19. The story about the city of Sodom. And the writer of the book of Judges writes this incident in the life of God's people in a particular way so that 16 words or phrases are repeated word for word here in Judges chapter 19 that they are in Judges, I mean, excuse me, Genesis chapter 19. Both of the stories each in Hebrew contain 69 words. He's wanting something to be communicated in the way he writes the stories. You see, in Genesis chapter 19, in the story of the city of Sodom, the city of Sodom that had committed such a great atrocity was a pagan city. They were not part of God's people. And what he wants you to see in writing it the way that he does and using the phrases that he does and in using the words that he does is that the city of Gibeah, it is God's people. They are now acting just as wickedly as the ungodly people of Sodom. In fact, they are acting worse than the ungodly city of Sodom because they are acting amongst God's people. This is how bad it's gotten. God's people have descended into a slow spiral of sin in such a way that they are no different than the people around them. In fact, they are just as wicked as the people of Sodom, whom God utterly destroyed. This Levite has no sense of value for this woman who's with him. She's simply a means to an end for him. And so he goes to bed and verse 27 says, her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. Someone here could probably correct me my, the breadth of my knowledge of ancient literature is not that expansive, but I am not sure that there is a more calloused man in all of ancient literature than this man. This woman and everyone else around him had become a means to his end. And when that end is no longer being achieved, everyone around him is simply expendable. He woke up the next morning. He literally had to open the door and step over that woman. And in seeing her lying there, he looks down and doesn't attend to her, doesn't show any compassion, doesn't even show the, the barest trace of dignity to this woman. He simply says, get up, we gotta go. And she doesn't answer. Most likely, we don't know, most likely because she had died. 
most likely because she had died at some point throughout that night. And so you can imagine the lack of humanity, compassion, dignity that he has shown this woman at all anyway, and because of the expendability that she is, because she's no longer meeting the, the ends to which he needs her for, you can imagine that when he put her on the donkey, he wasn't very careful with it. You can see the scene in your mind. And he puts her on the donkey and he takes her home. The Bible says when he got home, he took a knife and divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces. And he sent those 12 pieces throughout the land of Israel. One piece to each tribe. Friends, don't don't miss this. When you and I are no longer being shaped by God's word, who he is for us, who he has revealed himself to be to us, who he continues to be for us, when we're no longer being shaped by him and living in light of who he is and what he has promised, when we live life based on what seems right to us in our own eyes, inevitably those around us become nothing more than a means to our end because that's what we're driven by. You're going to see it play out over and over and over again, not just in this story, but in the rest of the chapters as well. But even in our own day, babies become fetuses to be done away with. Old age becomes a disease that we need to be rid of, and there are plenty of designer clinics able to help us get rid of it. When life is lived by what we determine to be right in our own eyes, when we become the subjective arbiters of what is right and what is wrong, when the righteousness of God and his person is no longer that which is shaping us and that which we live by, Nietzsche was right. If God's dead, then everything's permissible. It's simply logical. Paul will tell Timothy that people are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure. That sounds just like the Levite, doesn't it? Could probably apply to all the men of Gibeah. Lovers of pleasure, that which seems right in my own eyes, rather, Paul says, than lovers of God. It's the inevitable moral consequence when we don't allow God to be who he is and we seek to reshape, reform, refashion him into something that seems more appealing and right in our own eyes. There are moral consequences to that. That's what gets unplayed. That's what gets played throughout these entire chapters. Now, when the Levite got home and, and did what he did and sent this concubine out limb by limb to the tribes of Israel, he did it with an end in his own mind. He had a reason in his mind for why he did it. He wanted to incite the entire nation of Israel into a unified desire to punish the men of Gibeah. He wanted discipline and judgment and punishment to come to the people who did what they had done. And so he does what he does to try to incite this amongst the entire nation. And to some degree, it actually worked. Chapter 20 begins with all the people of Israel coming out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. That's like saying from the east to the west and the north to the south. Everybody came together. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. And here's the thing, that unity amongst all of Israel is tremendously impressive. It would be even more impressive if it wasn't so tragic. We have waited through the entire story 
for God's people to show this kind of unity in obedience to the commands that God had given them in the very beginning of the story to go into the land that he had promised and in obedience to exact judgment on the people of that land and receive the land that he had promised them and they had never done it. Cycle after cycle, time after time, we've been waiting, maybe with this one, maybe with this one, maybe with this one, and they never do it. But here, now, all of Israel has come together, 400,000 men with the swords to do away not with the Canaanites, but with one of their own. And so when they come together, this Levite's there. And if you begin to read the story in chapter 20, he tells his own version of what happened that night in Gibeah. And it's the Facebook version of the story. There's truth there, but it's not really the whole truth. There's a filter on the story that leaves him looking a particular way in the eyes of the rest of Israel. It's not quite accurate. And after hearing the story, the people of Israel determine that they're going to deal with the problem. They're outraged, they're angry, but here's the thing. Their hearts are just as far away from being shaped by God's revelation of himself and his promise of himself to his people as the men of Benjamin and Gibeah. They're just as far away from God. So in their outrage over what has happened in the city of Gibeah, in their outrage over this kind of twisted and tangled story the Levite tells, they determine for themselves what they're going to do. And rather than going to God for wisdom on how to respond, they determine what it is they're going to do and what the right response is. In their eyes, what they determine is right is revenge. They determine that something has to be done and there's this twisted sense of correctness and confusion at the same time. Certainly judgment is deserved. Certainly discipline is deserved but they've decided how it's going to happen. They've decided what the outcome is to be. They never call for repentance. There seems to be no effort at all to get after what's underneath what happened. What seemed right was revenge. And they're going to exact judgment on their own people. Friends, I won't spend time on it, but self-destruction is always the end of living according to what seems right to your own eyes. Israel now is determined to wipe out one-twelfth of herself. So in chapter 20, verse 13, 11, 12, 13, the men of Israel send a delegation to the men of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And they demand, verse 13, that the tribe of Benjamin give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But as you read the rest of chapter or verse 13, the Benjaminites refuse to take responsibility for what happened in their land. When the men of Israel come and confront them with the reality of the sin that had been committed in their land, for their lack of follow-up or follow-through on these worthless men of Gibeah. When the men of Israel decide to take matters into their own hands and say, give us those men that we might judge them, the men of Benjamin, rather than accepting responsibility, repenting of their allowance and compliance with not judging these men or disciplining these men or not doing something in response to this, they, instead of repenting, they build an army and take up arms. 
And now they're going to go to battle against the entire nation of Israel. The Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, verse 13 says. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. They have decided that rather than dealing with the sin of their people, they are going to condone the sin of their people by defending the guilty against the nation of Israel. And the reality of it is they should have dealt with those men themselves. They should have dealt with what happened there in Gibeah. And even when they didn't deal with it themselves, when the men of Israel came to them and wanted to exact judgment on those men, the men of Benjamin should have responded in some measure of repentance, owning what had happened, owning their own condonance of that. But they didn't. They took it as a personal attack. They mobilized an army. And we can't spend a lot of time on it, but the reality of it is when you and I live life through the looking glass of our own passions, you and I are led every single time to reject any level of personal responsibility for our sin. When you and I are after what is only right in our own eyes, when any exposure of sin comes, you and I are forced to not respond to it in repentance because that may change the trajectory. You and I are forced to move away from any responsibility to it and here's what happens. You and I begin to rename it, redefine it, readjust it, find new categories for it. We, we do this. David Jackman, he said it in his brilliant commentary on Judges. You and I launder our sins verbally to make them acceptable or at least tolerable. See, because we still have an ends to which we're trying to achieve. And when our sin is exposed and it stands in the way of our ends, we can't take responsibility for it because that may change the trajectory of life. So we've got to redefine it. I love this picture. We've got to launder it. We've got to spin it clean till it's clean in our own mind and clean in the mind of those around us. We rename it. We redefine it. Greed becomes upward mobility. Selective truth become lies that are little and white. Everything gets redefined because underneath it all is this desire to not take responsibility for it because there's something else we're trying to achieve. And if we can just do something with it that makes it seem more tolerable in our own mind and more tolerable in the minds of those around us, that would be the end to which we're after because then we can keep going. Our conscience gets bleached, anesthetized, what we're trying to do is remove any sense of moral guilt and pretend that what we're doing is okay and hopefully be able to get everyone else around us to pretend it's okay. The tribe of Benjamin is not taking responsibility for their sin. They're condoning the sin of the men of Gibeah and choosing loyalty to their people rather than loyalty to God. And the rest of chapter 20 it simply recounts the battles between the tribes of Benjamin and the nation of Israel. I wish we had the time to go through them. They are fun study in and of themselves. But in the end, what we find is massive destruction in the civil war in the nation of Israel. Tens of thousands of people are killed. 25,000 men of Benjamin are put to the sword. Some 65,000 men of Israel in a civil war. Now, Israel lost more than Benjamin, but Israel came with 400,000. Benjamin lost them all, 25,000. 
And just to see how, how bloodthirsty, in a sense, the nation of Israel was with this desire for revenge. You can read in chapter 20, verse 48, how after putting to death the 25,000 men of Benjamin, the fighting men of Benjamin, the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, the men, the beast, everything they found and all the towns that they found were set on fire. Complete destruction. We've been waiting the entire time for God's people to come together. To obey what God had commanded them in the beginning. For them to go and exact God's judgment on the nations in the land. But the only time we see it happen is when they manage out of a heart of revenge to come together to purge from themselves one of their own. And in it, God let them do what seemed right in their own eyes. Paul tells the church in Rome the same thing. One of the most excruciating aspects of God's wrath against sin is that oftentimes he allows us to get the very thing we want. And the people of Israel became the hand of judgment against the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin were allowed to be the hand of judgment against the nation of Israel. But it should come as no surprise because there's one more chapter. It should come as no surprise that a life lived according to solely what seems right in your own eyes, where people become means to an end, where personal responsibility for sin is completely eroded, where the, the effort has to be to make everything seem tolerable and right. It has to seem obvious to you that when life is lived like that, it can in no way be stable. There can be no real stability or firm foundation on which life is lived. And we begin to see the instability of that in chapter 21. In chapter 21, it starts that the men of Israel now on the other side of the civil war where they have completely wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. They come to this realization. They realize that when they all gathered before the civil war to go against Benjamin, that they made a vow together that none of them would give any of their daughters to the men of Benjamin to marry. We will not do that. But then they went and annihilated the people of Benjamin. And when the aftermath wore off. It says in verse two that God's people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. Now all of a sudden, those bent on revenge, those so clear on what must be done, those so clear on how this was supposed to happen, find themselves looking at what they did and the consequences of what they did and they're completely undone now. And so they say, why did this happen? Not able to take responsibility for their own sin and for their own actions, they're left in a complete state of instability now faced with the consequences of what they did. But the writer tells us something. There's no repentance. Again, there's no owning of what they've done. There's no confession of what they've done. There's no seeking of God in the whole thing. Yeah, you'll read, they built an altar, they offered sacrifices, but not from a heart of repentance. They found themselves, just like we read last week with Micah and the Danites and his family, they found themselves, just like we read about Samson and the other judges, they found themselves in a situation that they could not, in their own minds, get themselves out of. So they thought, maybe if we do the religious thing that we're supposed to do, then we'll be favorable in God's eyes. Then maybe this will work out. So that's what they did. They didn't confess. 
They didn't repent. They try now to scheme their own way out of the consequences of their sin. Chapter 20, verse 47, right before it changes, it tells us something that's important to the story, though. During that civil war, when they were wiping out the fighting men of Benjamin, 600 of those men of Benjamin, they fled the battlefield and they went and hid for four months in caves. So lo and behold, the tribe of Benjamin isn't completely eradicated. There's 600 men still alive. Woo! Disaster averted. But what happens when those 600 men die? They killed everybody else in the tribe of Benjamin. When those 600 men die, the tribe of Benjamin is gone. There's no wives, no kids, there's nothing left. So now they gotta figure out, they're not quite done yet. They're not out of the woods. The consequences of their sin, they're still real and they've gotta figure out what to do. But again, no repentance, no confession, no seeking of the Lord of what they should do. They remember, we made a vow. We can't give our wives to them, so what do we do? Well, I remember when we all met back there at the beginning, we made another vow. Maybe the other vow that we made can get us out from under the consequences of this vow that we find ourselves in. So you read in chapter 21, verse five, that back at the beginning, all of the people of Israel had said, which of all the tribes did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mitzvah saying, he shall surely be put to death. So they remembered back before the civil war when they all got together and determined that they had to do something, that revenge was what was required. They vowed one, not to give any of their daughters to the tribe of Benjamin in marriage, but two, that they would exact some kind of judgment upon any tribe of Israel who didn't show up to battle saying that the tribe of Benjamin deserved to die, right? They take a roll call. They realize that the tribe of Jabesh Gilead did not show up to battle. So to undo in their mind the consequences of one massacre that they committed against their people, they're now going to allow another group of their people from Jabesh Gilead to be the scapegoat for what they did. And they're going to go and judge Jabesh Gilead for not showing up. They're guilty by association for not showing up. So they go to the land of Jabesh Gilead. They put the cities of Jabesh Gilead to the sword and they kill the fighting men of Jabesh Gilead and take 400 women from the town or the tribe of Jabesh Gilead. Now we've undone the consequences of our sin against Benjamin and we've had to find a scapegoat for our sin in Jabesh Gilead. They take the 400 women and they give them to the men of Benjamin. Problem solved. Except the math doesn't work. How many men fled to the caves? How many women did they take from Jabesh Gilead? How many men are left? Problem not solved. They thought they had found a way to scheme themselves out of the consequences of the sin they committed against Benjamin by committing another sin against Jabesh Gilead, but it didn't solve the problem. So rather than owning what they've done, repenting of what they've done, seeking the Lord's wisdom on what to do next, they decide we got to come up with another way. Well, there's nobody else to judge for not showing up. So how else are we going to get wives for the men of Benjamin because we made a vow not to give them our daughters? Hmm, maybe we don't have to go judge anyone and kill them in judgment and take their wives. Maybe we can just let the tribe of Benjamin steal some women. Maybe there's another way. That way we're not giving them the daughters in marriage and we didn't have to exact judgment by killing the fighting men. They just took them. So that's what they do. Verse 19 of chapter 21. 
They said, behold, there, there's a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethlehem to Shechem and south to Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin saying, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we'll say to them, grant them graciously to us because we didn't take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to us else she would now be guilty. Do you hear the irrationality of their sin compounding upon itself? They are trying to solve the consequences of their sin through another sin. Listen, here's what we're going to do. Since we didn't take your daughters in battle, so when, you, when these dads and these brothers get mad that their sisters and their daughters have been stolen by these men of Benjamin and they come to the men of Benjamin, they will simply say, you should give them to us kindly because we didn't kill you and take them in battle and you didn't technically give them to us. So you made a vow not to give your daughters to us back there before the Civil War. And you didn't give them to us, we took them. So all's good. It works out. Everyone wins and everyone can go home. Sin became the solution to the fruit of sin. And a vicious cycle just keeps going. Do you, do you know anything of that? I mean, have you, have you ever woken up to the consequences of your sin. And rather than owning your sin with any sense of personal responsibility and, and confessing your sin and repentance before the Lord and, and seeking his wisdom for how then to respond to the consequences of your sin in a way that reflects his compassion and his wisdom, you find yourself looking at the consequences of your sin and not taking responsibility for it and trying to come up with another way to fix it. And it just leads to another sin that has consequences that you wake up to and figure out how to fix and how to scheme around and this cycle just keeps going. You find yourself on this merry-go-round that you can't seem to get yourself off of. The writer of Judges, he ends the book and he says everyone in those days was doing what seemed right in their own eyes. And when that happens, people are nothing but a means to an end and we see it in the most extreme examples here, but don't miss the daily reality of this in our life now. I mean, I mean, there are, and I, I don't like the term, we'll figure out the term, but we use it all the time in, in culture here. There, there are white collar social versions of this. You realize that, right? We see the extreme examples of the devaluing of people in this particular story in a number of different ways. But just think about it. Those of you who may manage people in a business or own a business or are executives in a business, how do you actually think and feel about the people who work for the company you're a part of? Are they a commodity to you? Are they simply employees that you use and then discard when they're no longer a good means to your end? Do they exist for your bottom line? Do they belong to the company? Are you asking them to sacrifice at times their personal sense of morality for the sake of the company's success? Are you asking them to sacrifice the life they live, the family that they live so that they can give everything that they are to this company and find themselves in a place where they're finally undone and burnt out, but then again, no longer a good means to your end. So it can be easily discarded.
Friends, the sad, tragic reality of what we see in the book of Judges is that we're really no different at heart than the people that we meet in the stories. It ends on a tremendously low note. And here's the thing. I can't add any verses to it. There's not another chapter. There's not another paragraph. There's not anything else that I can add to it to change the way that it ends. And in one sense, as we've already said, it's there to help us. It's there to, to help us see what's going on in the hearts and lives of God's people that we might not repeat the same patterns because whether or not the fruit exists in our life the way it existed in their life, the root of it does. In our hearts is the same desire to mold, to shape, to refashion God, to fit something that seems more appealing and right in our own eyes. Underneath our lives is still the same temptation to live our life according to what seems right to us, just like it did to them. The fruit of it might look different, but underneath the root's the same. It's there to help us see we're not that much different. And as one writer said, what's so dangerous about this is that the Israelites didn't set out to deny God the way they did. They simply tried to domesticate him. Friends, it ends on a low note as it exposes to us clearly the reality of our own depravity. But even though it ends on a low note, throughout the book and even throughout chapters 19 through 21, God offers a glimmer of the hope that is to come. He offers a glimmer of the reality that there is going to be a way off the merry-go-round. That there is going to be someone who steps in and, and delivers us from the spin cycle that sin keeps us on. Even Judges 19 through 21 holds out for God's people a taste of his grace. See, the reality of it is God's people in total, not just Benjamin, not just the men of Gibeah, God's people in total deserve nothing but the exacting judgment of God for their sin. All of God's people, the nation of Israel, deserved nothing but destruction. But we end the book with God's people in the land that God had promised to give them. Even the tribe of Benjamin in the end is not destroyed. Why? Because God wasn't done with them yet. God had made a promise to his people. He had committed himself to be theirs and for them to be his. And he had committed to always extend his loving faithfulness, his steadfast love to his people. See, the writer of the book of Judges, he keeps telling us that he thinks if there was a righteous king in place, then maybe things like this wouldn't happen. You ever wonder why he always says there was no king in the land and everybody did what was right in their own eyes? Well, just a little bit of historical trivia for you here. The book of Judges was most likely written in the period between David and Saul. It was most likely a political track, a political sermon in favor of David over against Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. It was a political treatise written in its own day. And they thought if a right king was there, all these things wouldn't happen. But when you pan out the scope of redemptive history in the story of the Bible, we see that God does give them the king they want. He does give give them David, a man after his own heart. He does give them a succession of kings in the nation. And guess what? Those kings led God's people into the same sin. A king wasn't going to fix 
what was, go- what was actually at the root of the problems. A political king was never going to be able to get after it, but God was just panning out the picture of one, just how deep the need and the depravity of God's people really is and just how radical a solution was going to be required to save them. The political king they were writing for and wanting for wasn't going to fix the problem. But God was holding out for them and showing them that there was going to be a king that was going to come. And he wasn't just going to be able to keep the peace amongst God's people. He wasn't going to be able to just keep things stable and keep them from killing each other. He himself was peace. And he would die in their place to set them free. God doesn't destroy his people at the end of Judges, though they deserve to be destroyed because he's not done with them yet, because he loves them, because he's committed himself to them, because he wants to dwell in and amongst his people despite their sin. The only way that I can can picture it and describe it for you is that the redemptive grace of God throughout the book of Judges, even here at the end in 19 through 21, it's like those posters that we had in high school, and if you're my age, that that were all fuzzy. They're like a a colorful barcode, and, and in them somewhere was a picture, but if you just looked at it, you couldn't see it. It was all craziness and kind of hazy, but if you squinted your eyes just right, and if you got it just right, the picture would jump off the poster and you'd see it with its clarity. The redemptive grace of God in the book of Judges, even here in the end, it's kind of like that. It's, it's there. It's hazy. The fullness is there to pick up, but it's not going to come into crystal clear clarity until the good news of Jesus is proclaimed, until Jesus shows up on the scene. God is holding out for his people the reality that he hasn't failed them. They're still in the land he promised. He's still with them. He didn't destroy them. He didn't give them what they deserved. And one day someone was going to come and he would take what they deserved in their place and give them by faith everything they don't deserve. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel. Catching the reality that at the end of Judges, God doesn't give his people what they deserve because of their sin, but preserves them and commits himself to them to one day give them everything they don't deserve through his son. That's the truth for you and I. We more than anyone know that God doesn't give us what we deserve. We know that just like the nation of Israel, we deserve his judgment, yet he hasn't given it to us. Why? Because he loves us. Everyone in here learns it before they learn anything else. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why? For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through him the world might be saved. He didn't destroy them because he loves them. He didn't destroy you because he loves you. In the gospel, you don't get what you deserve. That's the best news of it all. You don't get what you deserve. Instead, the one true king that God was holding out hope for comes and takes what you deserve in your place and then literally off his back gives you the righteousness that only he deserves. You don't get what you deserve. You get everything, though, that you don't deserve. Friends, that's the glory of the gospel. And God's giving the picture of it even through the book of Judges. 
And this kind of great exchange happens for those who unite themselves to this great king by faith and say, I know I deserve nothing but destruction for my sin. I know I deserve judgment. And the only way I avoid it is to trust in you wholly, to trust in you, Jesus, to take what I deserve in my place. And because of your faithfulness and your love, you give me what I don't deserve. See, it's owning the reality of your sin. Repenting of your sin, not trying to spin it, justify it, not trying to scheme your way around it. It's owning it, confessing it, repenting of it, and receiving what you don't deserve from the gracious, loving hand of God. Friends, I don't know if you realize or not, but every single week as we have the opportunity to respond to God's word, what we're doing is literally with our bodies, physically proclaiming, physically confessing, physically declaring our faith in Jesus to take what we deserve for our sins and to give us what we don't deserve, to give us his righteousness and our right standing before God. Every single week when we receive communion, when you walk forward and you take a piece of bread and you dip it in the cup, you are remembering that your sin deserves this kind of destruction. Your sin deserves nothing but the destructive justice of God's holy wrath. But Jesus took it in your place. When you dip that bread into that cup and remember his body broken and his sin poured out for your forgiveness, you are proclaiming in that act with your body, with your senses, you are declaring to everyone around here that you believe with your whole heart that Jesus took for you what you deserve and that in place of what you deserve, God gives you everything you don't deserve. It's not just a habit that we have to get you up and get you moving because you've been sitting and having to listen to me for a while. No, this is a public proclamation and declaration. That's why when we come to respond to God's word, you'll often hear us say, if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, we're glad that you're here and we are glad that you are here. And we encourage you as people come forward to receive communion to remain where you are. Why? Because coming forward and receiving communion, taking the bread, dipping it into the cup, you are making a public proclamation that you believe in Jesus. And for you, that would be a false proclamation. We're glad that you're here. But in a moment, as people come forward to respond and to proclaim the hope and the faith and the confidence they have in Jesus to take what they deserve and give them in that place what they don't deserve, we ask that you just stay where you are. There are some prayers, some things in your bulletin that can guide you through that time. Grab someone who invited you here when we're done and and ask them more about who Jesus is. Come to the Meet RH. Ask one of the pastors more about who Jesus is and, and why he matters. We want nothing more than for you to come to understand who Jesus is and why he matters. But this morning, as people come forward, just remain where you are. For those of you who have placed your faith and hope and your confidence in who Jesus is for you, in a few moments, after you have some time to reflect, we'll invite you forward to proclaim and to remember his life in your place for your sin. Friends, communion this morning, communion every single week for us is a reminder of the tenacity of God's grace. That his grace is more tenacious even than our deepest sin. It's a proclamation of our hope and our trust in his grace. The grace that saves us, the grace that keeps us, and the grace that I hope we all long to be shaped by. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have a chance like this to respond. Father, thank you so much, even for the book of Judges. I know it's sometimes hard to say that. It's so difficult to come face to face 
with the reality of my own sin, the reality of my own darkness, the reality of just how far, how far I'd flee if it wasn't for your gracious hand rescuing me and holding me and keeping me. God, this morning we, we need you to do the miracle by your Holy Spirit of helping us to see just how glorious and tenacious your grace towards us is in Christ. God, this morning we want every heart to walk out of here having tasted of your goodness. We want every heart walking out of here this morning confident in your promise to be for us and not against us through your son. And Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.